1: Once again, the coach of the University of Minnesota, John Anderson. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we, talk, we just talked a little bit about the Division I baseball committee, so we might, uh, we'll might we have that at the end. But I want to talk a little bit for our younger audience here just about the recruiting process kind of really as a head coach for 29 seasons. Uh, well, really, I would imagine that recruiting has just changed dramatically in the last 29 years of that process. Uh, what, what's the biggest change that's gone on in how you recruited then and how you recruit now?
0: I think the biggest change in my career is just today that because of the electronic age, the computer, the internet, you know, the access that people have to uh, passing information along in a pretty easy way. Kids can get in contact with you, follow your program through the internet, you know, they can send you information by email, you can get uh, video clips of kids today, so really, I think what's happened—it's opened up a, a whole different uh, opportunity for not only the schools but for the young people out there to make connections with different programs all over the country. And you can get initial looks at kids just by video clips and stuff they send you initially to find out if there's there's some interest. And uh, so that's that's changed the landscape incredibly, just in terms of the the, uh, the internet and. Uh, different websites that are out there and things that are out there. So there's a lot more information you get contacted by a lot more kids, and there's just more more uh, information to try to sort out as you go along.
1: Now, do you recruit? are we recruiting players younger now? I mean, it's like we, maybe we know more about it in this age where you hear about, you know, we used to rank 12-year-olds. Thank, thankfully, we don't do that anymore but it seems like people know more about players when they're 12 or 14. Do you find that you're recruiting players at, at younger ages or make, they're making contact with you maybe, or has that really not changed because of camps and that kind of thing?
0: Well, I think what's accelerated the process today probably more so is the fact that there's more opportunities for kids today to play. Okay. There's more tournaments, there's more showcases, There's more tryout camps. Uh, there's more places for kids to go to be seen, and I think because of that it's accelerated the process of getting information on people at younger ages. I'm not sure it's all good, to right. be perfectly honest with you. Right. I'm not sure it's all, it's all worked out as well as you'd like. You know, We're trying to make projections here sometimes three or four years down the line. I'm not even a big proponent of our early signing period that we have in November because I think you're trying to make some progress, pro- projections a little far out. You know, We can start contacting seniors now after July 1. We don't even have our new class on campus yet. We have right. some kids that have been drafted. We don't even know if they're going to sign and come back or whether they're going to sign with their pro teams. So you don't know who's coming, you don't know who's going, but yet you're trying to assemble the next group of players to try to figure out what your needs are, what you're going to have available in aid and some of those things. So I'm not sure that the culture today is all good and healthy, but it is what it is and you have to deal with it. But uh, we historically have not made early decisions, probably like some schools have, and I'm not saying we're right and they're wrong or vice versa. It's just the decision we've made. We've tried, tried to learn as much as we can, try to go a little bit slower. Um, and that's and a
1: conference decision, really, isn't it? The Big Ten Conference. It's driven by the
0: conference in some ways. And again, don't take this the wrong way. We've chosen as a league and, a, and an institution, a conference, the Big Ten. We don't, uh, once we make a commitment to a young man to join our program, we don't run people off. Right. It hasn't been historically the way we want to do business. Um, and uh, that's part of our culture. Maybe that's some reason I've been at Minnesota for 29 years as the head coach. And part of it fits my value system, who I am, and what I believe in. And so. When you when you're you're not going to run people off. We're not allowed to oversign in our league. Also, which is a big uh, challenge in recruiting. For example, we had two juniors that were high picks this year. One in the first round, one in the fourth. Likelihood of them signing is high. They Both have signed, but we can't give their money away like you can in some schools and conferences before they sign. The professional contract so I've got eight in those two young men but yet I can't give it to the next group until they sign. Or right. in other conferences they can say well we're pretty sure these two guys are going to sign. They can oversign to whatever limit they want to but they've got to be down to that you know 11.7. 11.7 by the first day of school now that we're certified on the first day of fall. In the past we never certified till the start of the second semester or the spring semester so that's changed the landscape some too but that, that makes it a little bit harder in, in our particular case about making early decisions and so that's probably driven us not to make some early decisions uh, like some people have, but, but we have to protect ourselves, too. If there's somebody we really like and somebody's offering them on July 1st and you, you want to have a shot at that kid, you got to be careful and make sure you communicate with that young person where you're at and how you do things, and, and hopefully you can continue to go down that road. But it's really changed, the acceleration and the early decision-making. and, and uh, the information today and the kids, the exposure they get at young ages today is, is entirely different than it used to be.
1: That 11.7 scholarship, I know when I started at Baseball America, I had no idea that college baseball players rarely, if ever, were on a full scholarship. How many in 29 years, and obviously the scholarship changed, changed before, I guess in 1991, it went from 13 to 11.7. How, how often do you give full scholarships at the University of Minnesota? Rarely, ever. You can count them on your hand.
0: Well, I think if you do the math, you can probably answer that question for yourself. You're trying to assemble a team of, mm-hmm. we have a roster cap in NCAA baseball, 35 right now, mm-hmm. So, you're, but you're really trying to assemble a roster probably of somewhere between about 25 players that you're going to keep active on a regular basis, so start doing the math. That's right. And you're trying to assemble a, a pitching staff, number one, and, and you have to assemble a pitching staff uh, to, a, to a degree in terms of the aid that you use to, to, to be able to compete on a national level, and so that's where it starts. But... In my, in my 10 years as a baseball coach, I've offered one full full ride. In my 29 years, it happened to be two young men by the name of Dan Wilson who played 13 years in the major leagues with the Seattle Mariners. And, and he was out of Barrington, Illinois. He was a great student. He went into mechanical engineering and he also pitched and caught his first year. And he was 6 and 1 on the mound and he also caught. And so he was a two way guy. He was recruited by everybody in the country. He was a great student. And so he's the only player I ever offered a full ride to. Never regretted it, obviously. Right. Now, after his freshman year, we decided. I told Dan, I said, "You got to make a choice because you have a great throwing arm, and I don't want to hurt your throwing arm because if your throwing arm goes, your career is over." Yeah. So I think you need to make a decision which direction you want to go. And he was good on the mound too. And he chose catching because he wanted to play every day. And he argued with me, so I can help our team on the mound. And I said, "Absolutely, you can." We found that out as a freshman, <laughs> the, but I think we need to make a decision for your future. And so that was the only young man that I have. And I think what you see in college baseball generally. Today, especially now, new rules are we you know, if we offer, it's got to be a minimum of 25%. This year in college baseball, you can only have 27 players on aid out of your 35. Uh, so it's changed the landscape. Some, some of that's been driven by there are some states out there that have scholarship programs, money from state lotteries that if you're an in-state student and you're a 3.0 student, you can get a uh, tuition waiver at uh, any state school. Georgia. Uh, Georgia, for Louisiana. example. Uh, Louisiana. I think Florida may have that. South Carolina. I don't
1: think it's any coincidence all three of those t- big state schools and those programs get to Omaha a lot. They are Those are the big revenue schools, basically, college baseball. They have more depth, and that, that's fair to say, is it not?
0: Well, I remember playing Ray Tanner a few years ago, came to our tournament in the Metrodome, uh, the Dairy Queen Classic, and Ray and I—Ray was on my staff when I was a head coach of the USA team in 1993. And we were talking, and... Uh, he was telling me, I said, and he said, I said, Ray, how many guys do you have on scholarship? And he said, Well, we have about 36 or 37. Yeah. Okay. And he was telling me about the lottery scholarship and the scholarship program he has. And, and he said, John, I know we just got more guys. We have more good players because we got more aid to work with. He said, I know it. It's a huge advantage for us, but I'm surely not going to give it up. Right, exactly. And so some of that rule was driven because of those states. And then you got schools in the SEC and stuff. One state has it, the, the next guy down the road doesn't have right. it. They're trying to compete in the same league. And so, really, the, the, the 20 said this year, last year was 30, now it's going to 27. It's really been driven to try to level the playing field, at least to some degree, uh, to, to say you can only have X number of guys on scholarship. And so, and I think you're seeing some of those changes are creating parity in college baseball. I think some of the parity, some of the top seeds not making it here. I think okay. you're seeing some parity in the game because no longer do you have some schools with 40 sc- kids on scholarship and right. some with 25. Um, I think the, uh, the, the, uh, the APR, the index now, less people are running players off because you can get penalized in the RPI, you can start losing some scholarships. I think everybody's adopted some of that legislation. It's made a difference, no question about it. 27 on aid. Um, and now I think what you're also seeing is the start date for practice and competition that's uniformed across the country. I think it's made a difference. I, don't, I think have, with 30, 35 men roster caps, I think you see... Rather than South Carolina or LSU or somebody having a whole cloud of players, you get Coastal so those Carolina. players are going somewhere else now, and so I think it's created some parity.
1: You get a team like Coastal Carolina that's in the same state as South Carolina, that's a number five or the number five seed, number four seed, number four national seed in the Big South Conference. You don't see Big South Conference teams doing that in most other sports, although obviously had Butler in basketball but see what a big deal Butler was because they came from a small conference. They get to the Final Four. That happens a lot more regularly, it seems like, in college baseball. Um, just on the, keeping on the recruiting uh, level for our, for our audience, I think, um, what, what are the, if you had a piece of advice, I guess, if you had a son coming up, what are some of the things that, like you know, Coach Forness, you had his own son, your assistant, who played shortstop middle infield for you guys for a few years, what are some of the things that you would advise high school players if they wanted to get a Division One college scholarship, Especially on the field, what are some things that they can do that would catch a uh, head coach's eye in the recruiting process?
0: Well, first and foremost, you have to have the talent level to play at the Division One level. So first and foremost, I would put your, I'd make your emphasis and your point of emphasis and any dollars you spend in terms of being able to improve your, your fundamental baseball package so you can be a Division One player because you're going to have to be able to hit, throw, and field and do certain things at a certain level if you want to get an opportunity to play at the Division One level. Some of the mistakes I see, I see a lot of people running around the country to all these showcases to all get right. exposure, and there's a lot of money being spent. And I'm not saying it's wrong, and I'll get criticized from some people who put on showcases, but I do think if you're going to invest that money, some people spend five, $6,000 running around the country to showcases to get a 25% scholarship. Right. And that's what's at the end of the day. I don't think today there's secrets. I think the good players, everybody knows where the good mm-hmm. players are. So if, I think if you want to be one of those players and get into the mix, first and foremost, you have to develop your skill set. Your fundamental skill set has to equate to the potential to be a Division One player. And for me, if it was my son, I would encourage them to go and, and whenever you're going to spend some dollars or take some extra time to refine your game to try to get to that level, I would put it into player development. Personally, that's my personal opinion.
1: Um, I'm, I'm, well, we're, we're all about scouting and player development at Baseball America, so you're kind of preaching to the choir there. Let's, so. let's shift a little bit to the Colorado Series and talk a little bit about this event um, and, and just uh, you know, the decision-making process. I don't know how involved the Division I Baseball Committee was in the process of the new ballpark. It doesn't seem like that was really a Division I committee uh, matter. But just how significant is it for college baseball in your mind? Did you ever imagine that any place, not to mention Omaha, would build a $150 million ballpark, basically in essence just for the College World Series? Did you ever see the event growing to the level that we're going to get this kind of ballpark that we're going to have next year?
0: Well, I was a senior in college in 1977 when the University of Minnesota came here and played in the College World Series, and what the event was then and what it is today is is mind-boggling to be perfectly honest with you. The growth of college baseball over the last 30 years has just been tremendous. I don't think anybody could have predicted what was going to happen, yeah. but it has grown and it's it's a, it's a it's a wonderful thing for college baseball. On the NCAA Baseball Committee, we have been in, not so much involved in the fact that they were going to build the stadium, right. but I think we've been involved in trying to help oversee the construction of the stadium and how it's built and what goes into it and, and been abreast of some of the, the, the financial uh, challenges that come with that and some of those things. So we, we have had uh, access to a lot of the information. Uh, it's a, it's mind-boggling also to see we're going to build a baseball stadium for two weeks for a 130 to 150 million dollars. That's mind-boggling, but I, I think what it shows you is the popularity of the college baseball game, where it is today and how it's grown. I think is what you really what the evidence is, and that means that there's more good teams, there's more good players, and there's more good interest. I think what we've learned over the last 30 years, if you get the right matchups, in good weather. In the right ballparks, the game's pretty popular. That's it. And and television, obviously, has increased the popularity of the game, uh, the, the coverage that ESPN has given the game. And then also, you know, even in our conference in the Big Ten, we have the Big Ten Network now, And it's created a whole different level of exposure for our league in baseball. You know, in the last three weeks of the season, we finished our season at Ohio State. We are on the Big Ten Network, and we had the Big Ten Tournament on the network. And then we went to Fullerton for the regional, and we were on ESPNU. I'm amazed at how many people I heard from, not only in our marketplace, but around the country, that were able to follow our team the last few weeks. There was probably more Gopher baseball fans that followed our program the last three weeks, maybe than in our history, all because of television. People wouldn't have had an opportunity to follow us because we were out of town in, in Columbus, Ohio, or in Cal, in Cal State Fullerton. So I, I think that's uh, also done a, uh, That's helped expose and grow the game and make it better. I think the challenge we have with the new stadium, we've talked about as a committee, how do you keep growing the game? Because now you have this investment down there, and you want to make sure the growth of the game continues. How do we do things? And I think the real big challenge to college baseball is how do you continue to grow the game in different areas of the country where it isn't as popular as it is in some areas of the country. And you need that growth, and I think that's what we're really looking at. How do we make the game better in other parts of the country? And how do you give some of the schools in the non sunbelt areas of the country uh, some hope? Right, the Big how you Ten specifically. How?
1: Yeah. how yeah, the last time a Big Ten team got to Omaha was what, like 85? Uh, 84, uh, Michigan, 84. 84, Michigan. 84. So uh, yeah, now we have Nebraska coming into the Big Ten, which obviously has been here three times in this past decade. Um, first, on that, on that note, you know, what does Nebraska coming into the Big Ten, you think, mean for Big Ten baseball? What's that going to mean for the Big Ten? What's it going to mean, you think, for Nebraska baseball? Maybe what, what are the biggest challenges be for Coach Anderson
0: and those guys? Well, I think the partnership is going to be good for both. I don't think there's any question about it. They're going to make our league better because uh, they have an excellent baseball program. They come out of the Big 12, one of the elite leagues in college yeah. baseball. So I think he'll be able to bring, and Nebraska will bring some perspective on how we can maybe make our league better and improve our league. Just by being in our league, they'll make our league better. Um, he's going to go from being the furthest northern school right. in the game 12, to K 12 to being in an area geographically where he's got more similarities. I think we're consistent in terms of our academic and athletic missions and our value systems, and no question about it, they're going to make our league better. And uh, uh, we're looking forward to having them in our league. And I and, uh, think it grows. Now, is this the end? Is there going to be more? We don't know that yet. When yeah. the dust settles, we'll see what we have here left as a league. but. I think Nebraska is just going to make our, 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 our league better, and I think it's going to be good for Nebraska because I think they're going to be uh, on a more level playing field than trying to compete with Texas and Texas A&M, right. Baylor and Texas Tech, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. I always said, you know, Iowa State had baseball in that league. How do you compete in Iowa State with Texas? Right, possibly. The toughest job in America. And uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think from Nebraska's standpoint, I think this is a better fit for them long-term. I think it's better for Big Ten baseball if they're gonna be with us.
1: I think it'll be better for all of college baseball if a Big Ten team if we could just get a northeastern team. This year we came close with a UConn, they hosted a regional. Louisville from the Big East has been here by still, you know, Kentucky. I don't think of Kentucky as the north. So <laughs> I don't know if they do, but I don't they're in the Big East. I don't think of them as being in the north yet. There's
0: still the problem you have is is if you look at college baseball about 20 to 25 percent of the programs are really prospering. I mean, really prospering in terms of attendance, getting to the College World Series. There's some
1: revenue-generating baseball revenue programs, programs out there.
0: Programs. The other 75 to 80 percent has had some success, but not at that level. And right. so, how do you make that 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 20 25 percent get bigger yeah. and get that's more hope? And, and that's what we're that's what we're trying to take a look at. And, you know, the problem with the northern schools, and I have to be careful because we play some of the Metrodome, so I'm not a traditional right. northern baseball program because there's been some years we've been able to play 30 or 34 home games where traditionally a lot of the Big Ten schools and northern schools only play 18 to 20 right. out of 56. And you look at some schools are playing 40 or, or some cases 44. Yeah, uh, uh, home games, and so how do you how do you determine who's the better team at the end of the year, and one's playing 18 and one's playing 40?
1: I mean, Arizona, that was a case in point. This year on the committee, they got into the tournament, correct? They were one of the last teams in, but they played 40 home games right. out of 56 regular season games. Right. How do you, on the Division One committee, put that team's RPI next to an at-large uh, potential team, say Michigan or something like that, from the Big Ten? I mean, how can you... Possibly compare apples and apples or not. That's the hard
0: part, and that's why you've got to use your whole body of work, and you've got to talk to coaches around the country, and you've got to use all the body of work and all the materials you have in front of you to try to make those comparisons. And I find for me, I call people around the country that I know and ask questions and try to find out. I think you also got to look at some of the statistical information on those teams. You right. get some idea about what their pitching staff's like by looking at the statistical information, what kind of team they have offensively, right. trying to make some comparisons. You've got to go a step further. You just can't look at the RPI, look at the record and where they finished, and that doesn't give you the whole story. When some teams for six or seven weekends in a row, every weekend they're getting in the bus or the plane, they're going south, right. they're coming back, they're practicing a couple of days indoors, going back out, uh, it's, it's hard to determine really what, what their level of play is. and uh, So that's the difficult part we have. You know, in, in football or basketball, the football basketball coaches would never say, we're not going to your place unless you come coming to our place. Right, right, absolutely. You know, we're not going to play, you know, uh, less home games than Miami's going to play. Right. Uh, that would never happen. But in baseball, because of the weather and the climate, that's the difficult part. And that's always been the challenge. But also, are we ones to say that Texas or Florida or Miami shouldn't play in February when they right. can and they can draw people and make money? Should we be the ones telling them they can't play?
1: I wouldn't want to be that guy.
0: Yeah, so, the, the, you know, that, that's the problem. And I've had coaches in the South tell me, well, John, where else are you going to play? Right. Well, you're right. Where else are we going to play? This is what we have to play with. But it is a challenge. It, it's not apples and apples at the end of the day. Uh, you have to be aware of that. So I think as as wherever you are, you, you have to take a look at who are we, what do we have to work with, and how can we be competitive based on the environment that we have to to, to work with with our team. And so you got you can't. We can't try to necessarily compare ourselves or try to be like Florida State because right. we don't have the same weather. We don't have access to the same talent pool. We're, we're going to be different than them, so we're going to have to do some things differently, and uh, that's a challenge. But I think there is a conscious effort today to see how do we bring narrow that gap and bring it to go out. How do we create more competitive equity? How do we do some of those things? And I think you're going to see some... We're going to take a hard look this summer on the committee of making some changes to the NCAA tournament. and maybe long term because of the new stadium trying to do some different things are we ready at some point here for neutral sites maybe right. one round of neutral sites maybe eight neutral site rounds of four teams are we ready for 32 first round matchups where you play two out of three basically flipping the, the, the format yeah. right now so you know I think you start with start back from the championship the championship series the last series of the year is two out of three yeah you start there and you work back you'd like to maintain that format all the way through. Because that's what you finish with, and that's what we should be trying to duplicate all year long when we play.
1: And baseball is when you get
0: yeah. into the tournament. It used to be 16 regionals. Right. That was that was insanity. In yeah, the last
1: the last year of that was 1998, and I went to the last one of those, and it was it was brutal. Uh, the pitchers who got ground through were. To, for a first-round pick and a second-round pick, and they basically never pitched again after that regional. So. Well, what
0: you see is that not, and whenever you put college, a college baseball game on television, whenever you, you get on the big stage, I think we want to make sure our product is as good as it can be. Correct. When you have loser bracket games in the NC tournament, it's not because they're not good programs. Nobody has enough pitching to go that deep into the tournament right. against quality competition and not end up in that position. And we don't need 20 to 15 games when we're on television or we're in the NCAA tournament. But what's driving that is the format. I'd right. like to see the format change. That's just my. I'm not speaking from a committee member. Now I'm speaking from my perspective as a baseball coach. Well,
1: we're going to finish so. that conversation off, off air because I'd love to <laughs> i love to pick your brain on some of those ideas. We also want to open the floor though for you guys. It shouldn't just be being uh, and Coach Anderson talking. Anybody here have a question for Coach Anderson about the recruiting process or about college baseball in general? Okay, sure. Don't <laughs> be shy.
0: I tell people all the time, first and foremost, if you have interest in playing whatever level of baseball, we'll just use Division I as an example. And you have a son that's interested, then I say what you do is contact that school, drop him a note, send him an email. If you have a short little video clip you can make up, it doesn't have to be elaborate, you don't have to hire somebody to make it, show the person if he's a pitcher, you know, throw in a few pitches, see how his arm work kind of delivery he has. Swing the bat, take a couple ground balls or fly balls. Nothing elaborate, just to get a look at the body type, how the arm works, what kind of swing he has. Blah blah blah. That's an initial introduction, just to introduce yourself. We have some interest in your program. You know, here's who I am, here's where I play, here's my schedule, and let then let people decide whether they're interested. And I, I, we get thousands of those, and that's okay. Like, star like high school level star like, yeah. You know, I would. Like, I, I don't personally. I, I don't think I'd start until you were a sophomore going into your junior year. I think before that, it's way too early. It's way too early, uh, personally. And uh, so just contact the school and reach out to whatever schools you're interested in. Just a basic introduction. And they'll look at it. We, we look at them. And if we don't think we have interest, we write back to the people and say, hey, thank you very much. We're not interested. We'll give you some evaluation of what we saw. If you're interested you want some feedback, and then you you know you can move on and go do something else. But... I think that's all it is, and, and then if we like what we see, we might call somebody we know in that area. You know this young man? Have you seen him play? Call a professional scout, get more information, and then you. For us, we don't take anybody unless we see him play. We go see him play. For us in the Big Ten and our conference, we that's the first. Once we determine that somebody has some ability, then it's to the counselor's office, and we have to find out what kind of academic profile they have. We eliminate more kids academically than we do athletically, I'll be That's honest with you. Her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, you're looking at I mean, what's your we try to look at the whole package, not just test scores, uh, not just, uh, you know, SAT or ACT or whatever. Uh, we look at, uh, you know, their, for us, the predictor for me, greater predictor is how have they performed consistently in their classwork over their high school career. You see some kids may start out poorly, but all of a sudden they've rebounded and matured and grown, they're really doing much better now. We look for trends. You look for so trends. You start and look at the whole packet, I mean the whole Yep. Yeah. Don't just say, you know, just looking for test scores or we're just looking for high school rank or class rank. We're trying to look at the whole thing and, and we're trying to you're trying to predict whether they can be a successful division one student in our school like Minnesota. <coughs> Thank you.
1: There are also NCAA baseline grade, point average, and test scores, right? What yes. are those baselines that they
0: have to do? Well, there's the core courses, first of all, you have to have. Now, they just raised the core course level. The one is the 16 now, I believe. Okay. 16 core courses that you have to have to be certified by the NCAA Clearinghouse. You have to, if you're interested in going to, to uh, college, you've got to register with the NCAA Clearinghouse. You've got to register yourself there. You've got to turn in a the transcript there. and Your test score gets sent there, so you have to be certified through okay. the NCA Clearinghouse. We can't visit a young man into our school until they have a posted test score with the NCA Clearinghouse. Uh, That's one of the factors that come into play. They have a website. The NCA has a website. The NCA Clearinghouse has all the information there. You can sort through it. and go to your high school guidance counselor. They can help you with that process. But there's a considerable amount of information at the NCA on their website that can... Help you from an academic standpoint. Where you need to register and what you need to have for core courses.
1: Okay. Anybody else have any questions?
0: Yeah, go ahead. Of the groups of the um, outfielders, middle infielders, corners, pitchers, catchers, of that
1: group, what what do you look for in attributes of those of those type of players as you build your team?
0: Well, I think first and foremost, you're always looking for athleticism in your position players. I think athleticism. If you have an athlete. I think the easiest thing to teach at our level is defensive fundamentals because that's just repetition. Teaching them to get in the proper position, the proper fundamentals of that position. So if you have athleticism and, you, and through repetition, I think you can always make somebody a, defense, a better defensive player. That's what we've found in player development. So I don't necessarily worry so much about maybe where they are. If they, they have bad glove habits and they're a middle infielder, we think you can change that, especially if they're an athlete. Okay? What do you recruit? You recruit a lot of shortstops. They're generally in the high school teams the best player. That's why they're playing shortstop, the best one of the better athletes. Unless you're a left left guy or a left-handed thrower, you know you're recruiting athleticism. That's what you're recruiting. We recruit a lot of shortstops. Some end up at third. Some end up at first. Some go in the outfield. Some go in the second. Some we make catchers out of shortstops with great throwing arms. So I think athleticism and then your throwing arm are the two number one things you look for in your position players. Well. And obviously you'd like to have you know some left uh, left-handed hitting. You'd like to have a left left first baseman, or at least a left handed throwing first baseman, preferably left left. You'd like to have a couple left handed, left left guys in the outfield. Um, left handed hitting in college baseball, you need good left handed hitting to beat the good right handed slider pitcher. So you're looking for good left handed hitting to beat the good right handed pitcher. Christian, you're looking for good left-handed pitching to get out the good left-handed hitters. So those, those are, that's what you end up doing, and you've got to have some left-handed hitting, you've got to have some left-handed pitching, I think you have to have some athleticism. And you've got to recruit some athletes, and then find a position for them at the Division One level. There's a lot of shortstops that get recruited. They're not necessarily all going to play shortstop, but you're going to move them and find a place for them at your level, and that's that's what you do as you put your team together. So I don't know if I've answered your question. Yeah, yeah. Throwing arm on number one, what's the first thing coaches do when they go watch somebody play? They watch them taking field and outfield. They watch them play catch. You can eliminate a lot of guys right from the beginning if they can't throw. Because when you get to be 18, 19 years of age, it's, we've had, found it's really hard to change throwing arms and make them better. And so you're, you're grading the arms, number one. And if you can't throw, there's there, there's a saying, if you can't throw, you can't play. I, got a thousand, I can find you a thousand DHs. That's easy. You can find guys that can hit all the time. But if you can throw... And if you have a legitimate throwing arm, you can move to any position on the diamond if you can throw. And so that's a skill, and I think kids, it's easy to, everybody loves to go to the batting cage, everybody likes to bang the ball away, that's the fun part of the game, but I think at a young age, as you're going up the pyramid and up the ladder, you have to develop your throwing arm. It's really hard to change, and if you look at the high levels of baseball, while you and watch the games today, every guy out there is out there for a reason, because he can throw. Some run faster, some hit more, some hit for power more, But they all can do one thing. They can throw. Look at Major League Baseball. Look around the diamond. What can they all do? They can all throw. That's why they they climb the ladder to the highest level. So I think young people, they ignore the development of the throwing arm, but at the end of the day, as you get to the top of that pyramid, that's what separates guys the most, in my opinion, is the throwing arm. I can Mm -hmm. teach somebody to hit better when they're 18 years of age. I can teach somebody to develop more power. But changing throwing arms is something, especially if it's a bad throwing arm. Is really hard to do. Now you can make them stronger by playing long catch and doing some different things, but to really change arm action significantly, where it can be a Division One arm or a professional arm, it's got to be developed as you come up the ladder.
1: What do you? How do you separate catchers? You've got three catchers, and you've got to use one of them. How do you? What makes you choose one
0: catcher over For me, the other first and foremost, it's being able to. Receive. I think you got to have a guy that can really be a quality receiver and block back there. Number one, number two is the throwing arm.
1: But you guys first had two drafted this year, right? I mean, Quasnico was a supplemental first rounder, okay. as a catcher slash outfielder he will be moved to third base. Right. But the Astros, and then Kadusen went what round did he go? He in the ninth round. Ninth round. So two single digit picks who both caught for you.
0: There's a saying in Minnesota, a lot of pro people say, all you have in Minnesota are catchers. Right. <laughs> the guys, that, guys that can't run, that are big physical guys that can throw and hit. <laughs> oh, yeah, Dan so, Wilson, like you talked about. So, well, he calls catcher you to some degree because we've had Terry Steinbach was a Minnesota guy, Craig Olson who got for the Atlanta Braves. They were all, Greg Olson was a high school third baseman that was an all-state player in football, basketball, and baseball and never caught a day in his life until he came to the university. But we lost a catcher late in the year as a junior, didn't have anybody, he was the best athlete. We said, Greg, why don't you go behind the plate? a pure throwing arm right over the top, put it behind the plate, and he ended up catching the big leagues. Terry Steinbach never caught until he got to minor league baseball. Yeah. He was a third baseman, first baseman, could hit. He got in the Oakland organization with Mark McGuire, right. who was a first baseman, that's where they were putting Terry. So he was not beating Mark McGuire out, right. and they had another guy by the name of Joel Nelson that was a left-handed hitter, and after his first year they said, Terry, let's teach you how to catch. And he learned how to catch, and he made a big league career out. If he never goes behind the plate, he probably doesn't hit enough to ever play in the big leagues. And so, that's what I'm talking about: they're taking athleticism, taking the throwing arm, and then playing the a, a position for those guys. But the uh, uh, catcher, you've got to be able to block, receive, obviously, be able to throw at that position at the higher levels of baseball. The hitting part of it for me would be last. That would be last. Not have yes, like to have receive, it all, but you're
1: speaking of the framework, all the
0: framing of yeah, being able to frame the ball, receive the ball, block the ball. You know, if you have a guy back there that's wearing out a pass of the backstop, and then the the pitcher knows he's not going to block the breaking ball in the dirt with a guy in third base, you're not going to throw it. He's not going to throw it. So for us, it starts with the receiving mechanics, receiving, blocking, you know, controlling the the game back behind home plate, being able to obviously help with the running game. Last would be the hitting part of it. And, and, uh, uh, you know, if you have a great receiver, you can't be a championship baseball team unless you have a quality catcher behind home plate. Watch the guy, watch the teams out here. They all have good catchers. That's why they're here. You gotta be strong up the middle. Catcher, second, short, center field. And look at the teams out here. I guarantee you most of them got quality players at those at those positions on the diamond.